Before we dismiss the children, so don't go anywhere, kids. Not yet. I know you're ready to go. Um, there's one uh, group of people that worked at Steadfast that um, spent hours and hours and hours, months of preparation. If you were involved in any way, shape, or form in the music, would you please stand for just a moment? Watch this. We are a worshiping church. And, and uh, you, you may be seated. We are a worshiping church. These are not, these are not uh, musicians who play Christian songs and sing Christian songs. These are worshipers who use their gifts. And I don't know if you caught, um, but we did a, we, like I had anything to do with it. They did um, an original song by Sam Moore, and Darren helped out with that as well, um, that is the best song I have ever heard that goes through Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It was amazing, and we need, to, we need to get that out there because it was truly phenomenal. So thank you, musicians. We, we are worshipers of Christ. Um, all the preachers will be put out of business, but we will all be singing Christ's praises for eternity. Um, so with that, now, where, where are the kids who sang in the choir, in the children's choir? Where are you? Stand up. Yay! Thank you, kids. That was beautiful. That was terrific. And now, all of the kids, you are dismissed to Children's Church. Well, our normal habit here at Grace is to teach verse by verse through various books of the Bible. We're going through the Gospel of John right now. But I want to do something a little bit different today to close out our thinking on the topic of creation, the truth of the beginning. And my message this morning has one point, and that's it. And that is that God demonstrates his total sovereignty by saying what he means and meaning what he says. God demonstrates his total sovereignty by saying what he means and meaning what he says. We've heard about theistic evolution this past weekend, that God supposedly created all matter, but then kind of backed off and, and let evolution take its natural course over long ages of time. And maybe God directed it in some way, but it, it still was natural processes that brought us to where we are now. And we saw that to come to this view, the theistic evolutionist has to read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 not as historical narrative, not as a story describing events which really happened, but as what we might call theological mythology. And I mentioned uh, Friday evening that the majority of mainline denominations now teach their children that Genesis 1 is a myth, that it's something that a little story that God told us to sort of explain something that we didn't really understand until the late 18th and the 19th centuries. But there are some major weaknesses to theistic evolution when compared to the Bible. First of all, to decide to read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as non-historical doesn't come from anything in the text itself. You'll notice that the first words of Genesis 1, 1 are not once upon a time. There's nothing in the text to tell you to read this as anything other than history. Those who read it from a theistic evolution standpoint, they read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 with a prior commitment. Before they ever open their Bible, they've made a decision about what they believe. And that prior commitment is to read Scripture through the lens of an evolutionary system. 
Second major weakness is that there are numerous literary factors in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that, to show it to be classic historical narrative. And I'm going to spend some time on that today. It is a normal way of telling a story in the Bible. And then the third weak, weakness is that both Jesus and every single New Testament author affirms Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as, as history. So now it's not just a question of questioning those first few chapters, but questioning really every, every biblical author. And by holding the theistic evolution, you've now, you've undermined imperative major Christian doctrines. Let me just give you a short list of the doctrines that get, have the rug pulled out from under them by theistic evolution. Number one, God's power to create from nothing. That gets undermined. Second, nature all around us as evidence of God's power, as of God's existence. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, if God didn't create, then the heavens aren't doing their job. Third doctrine that gets, gets undermined is creation is evidence of moral accountability to God, that you are accountable to God because he made you, and when you take, that, take creation away, then that's gone. We undermine the wisdom of God. Theistic evolution says it took millions of failed mutations to get every creature on earth. That's not a very wise God. Even if he was directing the evolutionary process, he failed a billion times before anything good happened. We undermine, fifthly, the the goodness of God. Theistic evolution says that an evil world evolved naturally without a starting point. Thus, God created evil. That's the ultimate conclusion you have to come to. We undermine the moral justice of God. Since theistic evolution would conclude that God is responsible for human sin, since he created a system that has death in it, now we've undermined his morality. We undermine human equality, and this is the one that just slips under everybody's radar. Theistic evolution says that humanity evolved from multiple groups of early humans. What does this mean? It means that one group might and probably is superior to another. But Acts 17.26 says God made every nation from one man. It undermines atonement for sin. Romans 5 explicitly says that Jesus, the second Adam, came to undo the sin of the damage done by the first Adam. If there's no first Adam, then what was Jesus doing? It undermines, listen to this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Theistic evolution undermines the effectiveness of Christ's resurrection to give life to those who trust him. And the tenth doctrine that theistic evolution undermines is the truthfulness of the Bible. That's the obvious one. This is a flat-out denial of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and, and calling into question the truthfulness of many other places in Scripture which affirm creation as recorded in Genesis. I read a bunch of them on Friday evening. People can say, well, the Bible affirms creation. I just wanted you to show, wanted to show you where it does. It's everywhere. And it's this last doctrinal point that I really want to drive home for us this morning. I want to camp out on the idea of the truthfulness of the Bible. Now, some might say, well, you can't prove the Bible is true. Science is the only observable form of truth. Let me ask you a question. 
Do you have evidence, scientific evidence, that science is the only observable form of truth? It's a self-nullifying statement. Science is a form of observing truth, but it cannot prove that it is the form of observing truth. This is the problem with the naturalist that says that all that there is is all that we can see and observe. Well, how can you prove that all you can observe is all there is? It's a self, uh, self-nullifying statement. I'd like to take this a step further. We don't even recognize the right of mankind. We don't recognize the right of science to give an opinion on the truthfulness of the Word of God. Science has confirmed that the Bible is true. Who cares? Who cares what science says? Archaeology has confirmed that the Bible is true. Who cares? Now, it happens to be that every time a new archaeological discovery is made, it always lines up with Scripture because Scripture came first. But who cares? Mankind was made by God from the dust of the earth. When did God give mankind permission to weigh in on the truthfulness of the Bible? We have no right. The Bible is self-verifying on various levels. It doesn't need an outside source to prove it. But today I would like to show you from Scripture, because Scripture is the best way to prove Scripture, I'd like to show you that a consistent reading of the Bible will lead to the obliteration of the ridiculous idea of evolution. It'll it'll destroy it. Specifically, I want to use the larger literary context of the book of Genesis, which is sometimes called the Pentateuch. Jews call it the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, to show you that the Pentateuch destroys reading evolution into the text. The Pentateuch should be rightly considered a single literary unit. It's often called the Law of Moses. And so I'd like to use the Pentateuch to assert my one point, which is God demonstrates his total sovereignty by saying what he means and meaning what he says. Now, here's kind of my plan. We're going to hit some high moments in the Pentateuch. I'm going to be referencing almost 100 verses, so trying to keep up by looking it up isn't going to work. So probably just listen this time. I'm not even sure if you can take notes on this. If you can, let me know because it might be interesting. But what I want to do is do a, a major flyover of some, some mile markers, some important notes in the story of the Law of Moses. Because the Law of Moses, while it contains the genre of law, Genesis through Deuteronomy is primarily narrative. Meaning it tells the story of the, of the beginning, and it tells the story of the beginning specifically of Israel. And so I want to show you how they all demonstrate, all of these stories, they demonstrate various aspects of God's sovereignty, his total control over all things. And so what we're going to do is kind of construct a grid that we're going to lay over each of these stories. Here's the grid. You're going to hear it multiple times. You'll have it memorized by the time we we go through each story. The grid is we're going to test every story against God's sovereign power, God's sovereign timing, God's sovereign foreknowledge, God's sovereign method, I'll tell you this again, God's sovereign plan for Israel, God's sovereign plan for the nations, and God's sovereign glory. All seven. We're going to just use that grid and see if, if how consistent the Lord is. Now, if you've been at Grace Bible Church for any period of time, this will be familiar territory to you. So let's just walk through some events. And again, we're just going to kind of hit the mountaintops pretty quickly here using this grid. The first event we'll look at is the worldwide flood, the flood of Noah. 
The flood of Noah is chronicled in Genesis 6 through 9. This is God's judgment on a world that has turned wholesale against him. God rightly diagnosed the heart of mankind that, according to Genesis 6, 5, quote, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Let's put our grid over the flood, God's sovereign power. Genesis 7, 11 tells us that God broke open the underground water reservoirs. He brought rain at a level never seen before, never seen since. The land and the sea, which had been separated in creation on day three, now is being brought together again. It's, in a sense, an undoing of the created order for a moment. God's sovereign power. How about God's sovereign timing? God told Noah how to build the ark, and when the ark was finished, God told Noah very specifically when it was time to get him, his family, and the, the designated animals aboard. Genesis 7, verse 4, God said, In seven days I will send rain on the earth. And he told him how long it would go, 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 10 of chapter 7 says, After seven days the waters came. And then Genesis 7 and 8 gives us an extremely detailed chronology of the flood going through every major part of the flood, and precisely how long it took. And we know how long it took. Depending on how you add up the days, it's either 370 or 371 days total for, before they could get out of the ark. Very, very specific. How about God's sovereign foreknowledge? Do you know anybody else who can say, I've decided to flood the whole earth and then do it? Genesis 6.13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. There's no nuclear weapons. There's no, uh, no massive biological weapons. So what does God use? He uses the water that's already here. How about God's sovereign method? The problem is given in Genesis 6, 5, the overwhelming wickedness of mankind. The solution is given in two verses later. I will blot out man whom I have created. That is his method. Then verses 14 through 21 of chapter 6 details, gives details of the ark through which God would save Noah save his family, who received what the Hebrew word is favor with God, grace with God. That was his method. How about God's sovereign plan for Israel? Well, Israel doesn't exist yet, so how can that be part of the grid? Well, God saved not only Noah and his wife, but his sons and their wives on the ark. And after the flood, Noah prophetically blessed his son Shem. And the detailed genealogy of Shem in chapter 11 shows him to be the forefather of Abram, who was the father of God's chosen nation of Israel. How about God's sovereign plan for the nations? We get a little footnote at the end of the flood chronology, the end of the flood narrative. Genesis 9.19 includes this little note that all the peoples of the earth are descended from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons. This is going to be extremely important in the upcoming covenant that God will make with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, and we'll see that here shortly. How about God's sovereign glory? God displayed his tremendous righteous wrath against mankind, which is totally turned against him. Well, Romans 9, 22 and 23 speaks of the wrath of God against people whom the apostle Paul calls vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Why? That the riches of God's glory might be shown to some that he calls the vessels of mercy. In this case, Noah, his wife, three sons, and their wives. Eight people. Let's put the grid over a second event, the Tower of Babel. Will we see all these elements? Genesis 11 records that the majority of humanity after the flood 
are gathering together. They've determined to build a city and to build a tower for the purpose of staying together and not dispersing. The, the tower was to serve the purpose of getting them closer to the heavens, to the stars, which men had begun to worship. And we would call the Tower of Babel really the beginning of human religion. So let's put the grid over it. Will we see all seven of these elements? God's sovereign power. God's solution to this rebellion was not only ingenious, it was somewhat amusing, I think. He confused the single language of humanity, and so all work on the tower and on the city stopped. The people scattered into ethnic language groups, and they, they went away. Genesis eleven eight and 9 uses three verbs that God caused. He, one, dispersed the people. He confused their language, and again, dispersed the people. Now, the shot was fired. Nobody died at the Tower of Babel. They just stopped working. That's God's sovereign power. We have God's sovereign timing. God said in verse 11 of chapter, uh, verse 7 of chapter 11, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language. Confuse is a verb that does not mean a process. It's a verb form that means let's do something once. Let's just do it once. Verse 8 said this was not a process. Quote, they left off building the city. God said it would happen instantly, and it happened instantly. How about God's sovereign foreknowledge? Verse 7, he did exactly what he said he was going to do before he did it. It's very simple. How about God's sovereign method? Listen, his decision to confuse the language of people, this is People have tried to explain this away. Well, just different dialects developed and they eventually couldn't understand one another. No, this is miraculous. This is not the slow development of different dialects which become different languages. Linguists tell us that even for a different dialect to form, which eventually may be recognized as a completely different language, a different dialect takes two major factors. You have to have geographic separation of peoples with little or no communication, and you have to have several generations. But it's still understandable, even if there's just a little bit of communication. There are different dialects of English, even within the United States, in Britain, in New Zealand, in Australia, yet we can still, for the most part, understand one another because there's some communication. But it took generations for those, those dialects to, to change. But the people at Babel instantly couldn't understand each other at all. It was instantaneous. How about God's plan for Israel? Israel was to be set apart as a nation, as a light of the one true God to other nations. Exodus 19 says that they were to be a kingdom of priests, a nation which makes God known to the world. And God's plan was not and never has been to have one giant singular people on earth. Which brings us to God's sovereign plan for the nations. God intended to glorify himself through the diversity of nations over the whole earth. That has always been his intention. God's mandate to Noah after the flood in Genesis 9, 1, fill the earth, meaning disperse, rule the earth as mankind made in God's image. But they were doing the opposite at Babel. But God's plan for the nation was for them to fill the earth, and so he made it happen. Now, there's an interesting little chronological note here. The Tower of Babel happens in Genesis 11, but the table of nations, the origin and the ancestry of nations listed in the Bible is listed in Genesis 10. It's out of chronological order, and there's a reason for this. 
because the, the events of chapter 11, Tower of Babel, is what leads to the creation of the nations in chapter 10. And this is important because God's plan for separate nations was good. And so he lists the nations first. And then in chapter 11 of the Tower of Babel, he just tells us how he made it happen. What about God's sovereign glory? God's total kingdom program, beginning to end, has always included separate nations, which would all eventually glorify him. I read earlier from Revelation 21. Let me read you some other verses from that chapter that give the description of New Jerusalem on the new earth at the end of redemptive history. This is what's happening at the very end of redemptive history. By its light, speaking of New Jerusalem, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And then they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. This is nations bringing tribute and wealth to Jerusalem as the center of God's plan. Do we have in the Old Testament a small picture of this? We do. How about the Queen of Sheba coming to Solomon, a Davidic king, and bringing the glory of her land to this person that she called the wisest man in the world? So does the grid fit the Tower of Babel? Perfectly. Let's apply the grid to another event, the birth of Isaac, the son of Abraham. The birth of Isaac, the son of Abraham. We're still in Genesis. God promised Abraham a son in Genesis 17. Then chapter 18, small problem. Abraham is 99 years old and Sarah, his wife, is 89. She was long past childbearing years. She was long past grandmother years. I mean, she's, she's been around for a while here. Now, let's put the grid over it. God's sovereign power. Genesis 21.5, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him, meaning that Sarah was 90. The oldest woman that we know of to give natural birth was a 59-year-old woman in Britain in 2007, breaking the previous record of a 57-year-old woman recorded in, uh, in earlier years. Sarah would say, you ladies are amateurs. That's God's sovereign power. How about God's sovereign timing? Not only did God tell Abraham that he and Sarah would have a son, he said when. Genesis 18, 14, this time next year. Genesis 21, 2, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Exactly the right time. How about God's sovereign foreknowledge? This wasn't a promise just made a year earlier. All the way back in chapter 12, two and a half decades earlier, God told Abraham that he would be the progenitor of a great nation, yet he had no children. God reiterated this in chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 18, until we get to chapter 21, verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. This is foreknowledge. How about God's sovereign method? Abraham tried to have tried his method to have God's promises to him fulfilled. He had Ishmael by the servant Hagar. But Genesis 17, beginning in verse 18, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him, God's method. How about God's sovereign plan for Israel? Well, Abraham is universally known as the father of Israel through Isaac. How about God's sovereign plan for the nations? The Abrahamic covenant has a key feature to it. Genesis 12, verse 3, In you 
all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in fact, very, very unusually in the biblical covenant, God made a promise to a woman. God said of Sarah in Genesis 17, 16, I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. How about God's sovereign glory? This is very interesting to me that the mythological stories of the origin of nations is usually pretty epic. For example, the founder of Rome was supposedly raised by wolves first. Alexander the Great was supposedly descended both from heroes and from gods. By the way, his own mother was the greatest proponent of this. She was his, she was his marketing agent, apparently. Egypt was founded supposedly by an entire panoply of gods. The, the, the origin of ancient cultures is always said to be epic. Well, how about Israel? A really, 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 really old woman had a baby by a really, really old man. And that's it. Why? Because Israel can never take a single shred of pride or credit for their existence. As a matter of fact, God told Israel in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Yeah, zero. It's because the Lord loves you. And so all glory goes to God because Isaac's birth is miraculous. Let's look at another event, the dreams of Joseph and Pharaoh. We're still in Genesis. The dreams of Joseph and Pharaoh. Joseph, the 11th son of Jacob, and we looked at this in detail last Sunday night. He sold into slavery in Egypt and subsequently imprisoned. As a boy, he had two dreams, which meant the same thing, that his brothers would one day bow down to him. He's eventually called to an audience with Pharaoh to interpret Pharaoh's two dreams, which mean the same thing, seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine in Egypt and the surrounding nations. So let's put the grid over it. God's sovereign power. God inserted dreams into the minds of men, and in both cases, two similar dreams, as Joseph had told Pharaoh, meant to confirm the truth of the matter. That's power. How about God's sovereign timing? Joseph had also, as you remember, interpreted the dreams of the fellow prisoners, the cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh, telling them that each of their fates would be decided in precisely three days. And he told them who would live and who would die and how long it would take. And it came true exactly three days later. Pharaoh's dream told him that there would be precisely seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. That's exactly what happened, of course, with Pharaoh elevating Joseph to prime minister to manage that entire 14-year cycle. How about God's sovereign foreknowledge? God gave incredible specificity. The details here are right on point. And by the way, uh, Joseph's brothers would eventually come to ask Prime Minister Joseph for grain during the famine. And guess what they would do? They would bow down to him as per the dream Joseph had. How about God's sovereign method? God chose the method of giving Joseph dreams of eventual exaltation. He chose the method of his slavery, his imprisonment, then his exaltation to leadership, all so that Joseph's entire family would eventually come to Egypt. His father Jacob, who is Abraham's grandson, the continuing heir to the Abrahamic covenant, which brings us to God's sovereign plan for Israel. Psalm 105.17 says that God sent a man ahead of his family to save them from a famine that wouldn't happen for at least 22 more years, and that man was Joseph. 
This would bring Jacob and his whole family to Egypt, and in Egypt they would grow into a mighty nation. And as a nation, they would be enslaved all to fulfill what God had said to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. In Genesis 15, verse 13, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God's plan for Israel. How about God's plan for the nations? God had also promised Abram in the very next verse, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And now Israel would be beholden to God as their redeemer, as the one who ransomed them from slavery, and thus he would make a covenant with them, which included that they were to be an example to the nations. Psalm 105, verse 1, gives Israel's mission. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. That is the mission statement of the nation of Israel. And how about God's sovereign glory? Well, the dreams of Joseph and Pharaoh were the setup for the glory that God would receive generations later at, this, at the time of the Exodus. Speaking of which, our fifth event, the Exodus of Israel from Egypt. The Exodus of Israel. God, God called Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, but Moses would do so in a way that sent a clear message both to Egypt and Israel as to who is the one true and living God. So let's put our grid over it. God's sovereign power. This one's a no-brainer. The Exodus was preceded by one of the greatest displays of God's power in all the Old Testament. The ten plagues of the Exodus, the water to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock dying, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, death of the firstborn, and cap it all off in Exodus 14 with the parting of the Red Sea through which Israel escaped Pharaoh's army. That's power. How about God's sovereign timing? God told Abraham that Israel would be in captivity for four centuries, and that's precisely what happened. And, by the way, the plagues all happened exactly when God said they would. The water to blood, for example, God said in Exodus 7 that the next day Moses and his brother Aaron were to turn the waters of the Nile to blood, and it happened, quote, in the sight of the Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. It was instantaneous, and it happened exactly the day that God said it would, every single plague. How about God's sovereign foreknowledge? Before any of the plagues happened, God told Moses in Exodus 6, verse 6, Say to the people of Israel, I will redeem you with great acts of judgment. And every single plague was predicted before it happened. This wasn't God just taking credit for it after the fact. This wasn't God seeing some sort of mudslide with red clay up uh, up the Nile and saying, hey, that kind of looks like blood. I think I'm going to tell him I'm about to turn the water to blood. God predicted it beforehand. As a matter of fact, try making this prediction. God predicted in Exodus 14, verse 17, before he did it, he predicted he was about to wipe out the biggest army on planet Earth. And he did it. How about God's sovereign method? Exodus 14, 1 as Israel is leaving Egypt, God said, hold on. And he gave them a, 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 a turning point. And the word in Hebrew literally is to turn back or turn around. God told them to, to camp in a certain location. 
He said, and this is my translation, you see the Red Sea, which is the most indefensible uh, place on, on planet Earth, and you see the Egyptian army there? I want you to put yourself between them. And that's where they were to camp, to be vulnerable. Why? Because this was God's method. He would get the glory. Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. That's all you have to do. Then God told Moses two verses later, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. That was God's method. How about God's sovereign plan for Israel? Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, God had chosen Israel to be, quote, his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. And verse 8 says that God was keeping his promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Out of love, he, quote, redeemed you from the house of slavery. It was out of love. He was keeping his promise. How about God's sovereign plan for the nations? Again, in the purpose statement for the existence of Israel, they must survive because God said that, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In Exodus 19.6, in other words, Israel existed to make God known in the world. And how about God's sovereign glory? There are literally just countless repetitions in Exodus about the reason God decimated Egypt and rescued Israel. I'll just give you two of them. To Israel... He says in Exodus 6, 7, And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And to Egypt, Exodus 14, 4, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Why did God choose Pharaoh to get glory over? Pharaoh is the most powerful man on earth, who supposedly has the ear of all the powerful gods of Egypt. And God says, watch this, I will get glory over him, and by implication, over all of his gods. Here's another event. We move on to the book of Leviticus. This event is very important to Israel, and this is the Sabbath year law, the Sabbath year law of Leviticus 25. God gave his redeemed nation his requirements that they were to follow in in loving thankfulness for his rescue of them from Egypt. This included the Sabbath year law, that every seven years, the farmland was to be given a break. They were not to farm. And God would provide extra provision in the, in the sixth year. Leviticus 25 near the end says, I'll give you three times. Why is that? To cover the year, current year, the year that you're not planting, and the year that you're waiting for the crops to grow in year number one again. And that covered them. But Israel eventually decided to ignore this law. The thought of a year with no harvest was just too much for their greedy hearts to deal with. Let's put the grid over it. God's sovereign power. Because of the idolatry, the spiritual adultery of Israel, God would bring judgment and discipline in the form of invading nations. Isaiah 10, Habakkuk 1, outlines how God sovereignly would raise up Assyria first and then Babylon to accomplish this task. He raised up empires to do his bidding. That's power. How about God's sovereign timing? Jeremiah 25:11 says that the captives from the southern kingdom of Judah would serve the king of Babylon 70 years why 70? Second Chronicles 36, 21, quote, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land has enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Why? Because apparently Israel had skipped 70 Sabbath years over a course of 490 years. And now they would make up for it. 
How about God's sovereign foreknowledge? Habakkuk 1 predicted the coming of Babylon. Isaiah 44 gave the name of the man who had released Israel at the end of the 70 years. His name is Cyrus. Did that 150 years before Cyrus was even born. How about God's sovereign method? Well, quite simply, his method was to take the Israelites off the land so that they couldn't farm it for 70 years. Very simple method. They can't do it because they're not there. How about God's sovereign plan for Israel? Listen, the Sabbath year was so important. It served as a reminder to trust God for their provision, to trust God. You know, we have the same principle here. Sometimes on occasion, a church member will say to me, I really, really need to work seven days a week to make ends meet. And I'll say, no, you don't. You need to trust the Lord. We're not under a Sabbath law, but the principle is the same. To say I must work seven days a week is to say I'm stronger than God is. And so that Sabbath year, can you imagine God commanding you to quit your job every six years for a year? Well, I could imagine that. That'd be kind of nice, wouldn't it? But that's a major trust in the Lord. God was reminding them of something. He was reminding them that land isn't yours. It's mine. Do with it as I say, and you will let it rest on the seventh year. You will take care of it. By the way, when Israel returned from exile, guess what they started doing? They started observing the Sabbath years. The returned exiles declared in Nehemiah 10.31, we will forego the crops of the seventh year. Did you know that in the time between the Testaments, both Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar kindly did not tax Palestine every seventh year because they knew they were observing the time of no harvest. How about God's sovereign plan for the nations? God continued to work with Israel even after their rebellion. Why? Same reason as always. Psalm 67, 1 and 2 says, May God be gracious to us, meaning Israel, and bless us, meaning Israel, and make his face to shine upon us, meaning Israel. Why? that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. And how about God's sovereign glory? The Sabbath year was given with a distinct aim, a distinct goal, a distinct focus, a distinct reason. Leviticus 25.2 says that this is a Sabbath year, quote, to the Lord. It is to glorify him, to honor him. It is a gift to him. Let's move on to the book of Numbers. There's another event, the wilderness wandering of Israel. The wilderness wandering. In Numbers 13, God sent Israelite spies to Canaan. Two spies believed the Lord, that Israel could conquer these peoples. Ten did not believe the Lord. And the people believed the ten. They rebelled against God and demanded to go back to Egypt. And so God would have Israel wander the wilderness for 40 years as punishment for not believing him. Let's put the grid over it. God's sovereign power. Numbers 14, verse 37 records to show that he meant business. The 10 unfaithful spies were struck dead immediately. God's sovereign timing. God ordained 40 years. If you do a careful tracking from Numbers 1 all the way through Deuteronomy 34, you get a detailed outline of these 40 years. And in fact, the 40th year is so important that every month has an important event recorded in that 40th year. How about God's sovereign foreknowledge? Numbers 14.34 not only predicted the 40 years, but that all the men 20 and older would die in the wilderness. We said a number of weeks ago it was good to be 19 in that day. Now, 
That means that there would be no men over the age of 59. Considering that men were still living far, far beyond 60. I mean, Moses was 80 before he even started the whole Exodus thing. He lived 40 more years. This is a stunning prediction. 40 years later, Deuteronomy, or Numbers 32, 13 rather, quote, he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. God's sovereign method. Why didn't God just strike everyone dead? And by the way, he did offer to do that. He offered to Moses, let me just kill everybody and I'll start over with you. But God knew that Moses wouldn't take him up on this. God could show his grace and his mercy. But his method was to make them wander, but to love them at the same time. All during the 40 years, Deuteronomy 8 verse 4 says, Your clothing did not wear out on you. Your foot did not swell. Wandering, discipline, yet with love, was God's chosen method. How about God's sovereign plan for Israel? Numbers 14.35 says that the reason for this wandering was to purify his people. And if you read about what happens during this time, God reiterated the need for sacrifice for sin. He executed a Sabbath breaker. He put down the rebellion by the Korahites. In other words, he was preparing a cleansed people to enter the land. How about God's sovereign plan for the nations? The the twelfth month of the fortieth year records the death of Moses. And now God would judge the wicked Canaanite nations through Israel's conquest. But we also see in the conquest a microcosm, an example, a sample of Israel's mission to the Gentiles who would turn to God. We see the salvation of a woman named Rahab, a Canaanite from Jericho who became a God-worshipping Jew. How about God's sovereign glory during this time of wandering when the people were rebelling after the spies came and gave their first report? They were set to murder Moses, to murder Aaron, and to replace them with leaders who would take them back to Egypt. They were ready to do this. And right when they were getting ready to do this act of rebellion, at that moment, Numbers 14 says, The glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And at that moment, as God was was supernaturally protecting Moses, God offered to Moses, let me kill them and make you a great nation. Moses interceded on their behalf and God glorified himself by showing great mercy to the very people who were ready to kill his prophet. He glorified himself. Let me give you one more event. We move on to the book of Deuteronomy and that is the prediction of curses in Deuteronomy 28. The prediction of curses in Deuteronomy 28. God gave Israel a choice. In verse 1, faithfully obey and the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And for the next 14 verses, we get all the blessings that an obedient Israel would receive. Or, verse 15, do not obey. Quote, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Then God lists over 50 what we might call verses of curses. And it just goes on and on and on of all the things that will happen to Israel in their future. Let's put our grid. God's sovereign power. The biggest promised curse was that Israel would be scattered across the world. Verse 64 of Deuteronomy 28. 
Now, the Babylonian exile, remember, was only two of the 12 tribes of Israel. The other 10 had already been scattered when Assyria came and decimated the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. By the time Jesus was born, it's estimated that only 20% of all the Jews in the world lived in Israel. That's God's power. How about God's sovereign timing? If they were not faithful, scattering would happen. And as this discipline grew nearer, the prophets in the failing nation gave more and more specific warnings, and specifically even what peoples would be used and when. How about God's sovereign foreknowledge? Verse 64 of Deuteronomy 28, The Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. Today, there are 14.5 million Jews in the world in at least 110 different countries, and only 43% of the world's Jews actually live in Israel, and that's only since 1948 when the regathering began. They're scattered everywhere. How about God's sovereign method? Did you notice that he scattered them? He didn't decimate them? That was his method because he was scattering them, not forgetting them. Because remember... God's sovereign plan for Israel, while they're scattered, God continues to love Israel. Now, this is very interesting. He said in Exodus 34, 14, that he is a jealous God. He is jealous for Israel. He wants to be worshipped alone. He wants to be the object of their worship and affection, and rightly so. And so what was God's plan for Israel? It was to, in turn, make them jealous. Moses told them in Deuteronomy 32.21, which is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 10, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation with a foolish nation. I will make you angry. And who is this foolish nation to make Israel jealous so that she will turn back to God? It is the Gentile church of Jesus Christ. We are here this morning partly to make Israel jealous. Which, of course, brings us to God's sovereign plan for the nations. During this time of Israel's rejection, God has been bringing Gentile kingdom citizens into the flock, into the flock, into the flock of God through the truest and most faithful Israelite who is currently fulfilling Israel's mandate to be a kingdom of priests, and that is Jesus Christ. He's doing the job Israel was supposed to do. How about God's sovereign glory? In the future regathering of Israel, Isaiah 43, beginning in verse 5, says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, listen, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. All of this, for his glory, even the curses of Deuteronomy 28, ultimately to glorify himself. So, what in the world does this have to do with the creation account at the beginning of the Pentateuch? The Pentateuch has shown that his major activities, the hallmarks of God, demonstrates his sovereignty, his sovereign power, his sovereign timing, his sovereign foreknowledge, his sovereign method, his sovereign plan for Israel, his sovereign plan for the nations, and his sovereign glory. To say that the creation account is somehow different in a different category is utterly inconsistent with the rest of the Pentateuch. Let's put the grid over. God's sovereign power. 
repeatedly in the creation account, God says, let there be, let there be light, let there be an expanse, let there be lights in the heavens. God creates from nothing with a word. This is ultimate sovereign power. By the way, God had to create the space in which to put everything also. How about God's sovereign timing? Just like every other example in the Pentateuch that we've seen, God is specific and he is precise with timing. There is evening, there is morning, the first day, the second day, the third day, and so forth. On the seventh day, God rested from his work of creation. If God meant long ages, he would have said so. There are numerous Hebrew words to make that clear. Old earth proponents say, as one writer said, quote, time with God has no meaning. To him, 10 billion years is like a day. First of all, to say that you know how God experiences something is scary. I wouldn't say that for all the money in the world. Second, Genesis 1 isn't written to God. It's written to humanity. The argument that the original readers couldn't conceptualize long, large numbers, so God just used day instead of billions of years, that, that's a faulty argument. Why didn't God just tell Abraham that someday he would have just one descendant? Instead, he told him that his descendants would number like the sand and like the stars of the sky. In other words, God made certain to communicate the vastness of numbers when it was appropriate to do so. People say, well, Abraham wouldn't know what a million is. True. So God said like the sand and like the stars. And in the Pentateuch, the numbers God says are always the numbers he means every time. How about God's sovereign foreknowledge? Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image. Then in verse 27, he did it. This is not God-ordained evolution. This was the instantaneous making of mankind in the fashion that he said he was going to, to be like him. How about God's sovereign method? Genesis 1 goes to extreme pains to make sure we see precisely what God's method was. He formed all space. He formed all matter. He formed it into the earth, into water. He created light. By the way, he even made the light before the light givers to make sure we know that the light givers were created. He made Adam from dust as a physical, spiritual being with the breath of God in him. That was his method. What about God's sovereign plan for Israel? Well, we said Friday evening that the creation account was first for Israel's benefit to teach them that they serve the singular creator of all things, to give them the first reason God is worthy of worship. In Psalm 95, verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That was his plan for Israel. They must know who their creator is. And how about God's sovereign plan for the nations? The Genesis account speaks of the Garden of Eden five times. That's the exact phrase used. But Eden is introduced to us with a different Hebrew construction. Genesis 2.8, the first mention of Eden is the Garden in Eden. Chapter 2 speaks of the land of Havilah. Chapter 4 speaks of the land of Nod. So what is Eden? What is Havilah? What is Nod? These are nations. These are set-apart territories distinct from one another. And this is before the fall. Nations were always part of God's kingdom program. And how about God's sovereign glory? 
That's the easiest one. Creation is for God's glory. Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And by the way, somebody will say, well, there were no witnesses at creation. I beg to differ. The Bible says there were witnesses. You've just never met any of them. Job 38, 7 says that at the creation, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. These are the angels of God, apparently created first, so that God would have witnesses Billions and billions of witnesses to the power and the might of the only being in the universe that can create with a word. And I don't know, but I wonder if there was a Genesis 0 verse 1, if it would say, watch this. (laughs) The historical narrative of the Pentateuch is all consistent and what it reveals about God. You cannot just make up new rules about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. One lesson today, God demonstrates his total sovereignty by saying what he means and meaning what he says. Listen, without creation, you are lost. You are utterly hopeless. The evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins, he wrote this. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Listen to this. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. In other words, evolution leads to atheism. And theistic evolution has opened the door, I can't even believe we put these phrases together, to a Christianized atheism. But God must be the creator of heaven and earth. He must be our maker because the Bible says that the earth is going to die, a fiery judgment, and you know you're going to die. And so God must also be the recreator of the new heaven and the new earth. And he must be the one that through Christ will resurrect and remake you and me. I don't know about you, but I don't want my own resurrection to take five billion years. I don't think anybody who's a Bible-believing Christian believes that the resurrection is anything less than instantaneous, just like creation. And now you can have confidence because God said what he means and he meant what he said. Not just when he said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but when Jesus said, in the last day, I will raise you up. We must have confidence in his word. Amen? Amen. Our Father, we thank you so much for the consistency of your word. It is so apparent right there in the text, and we give you glory and thanks for the work of creation, which sets the table, sets the, the dramatic scene for the coming of Israel, the coming of Christ, and our own salvation and our eventual glorification with you all because of Christ. And so for those things, we give you glory and thanks. In the name of Jesus Christ, whom Colossians 1 calls the creator of all things, we pray, amen.